Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up today, in his new book, historian Peniel Joseph argues the U.S. is currently going through a third reconstruction. The first was after the Civil War, and the second during the civil rights era of the 50s and 60s. And Professor Joseph makes three comparisons in the new book, and it's called The Third Reconstruction, America's Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century. And this conversation is part of Closer Look's ongoing segments, all related to the current state of our nation's democracy. Plus, we'll find out what's on the agenda for Agnes Scott College's annual Women's Global Leadership Conference. I am looking forward to being able to have our community engage on this topic. And when I say community, to me, that means the Atlanta community, as well as our students and faculty and staff. And you'll hear more from Agnes Scott President Leo Kadia Zak later in the program. All that's just ahead, but first, let the countdown begin because the midterm elections in November are just now weeks away. And this week is key for Georgia voters, so pay attention tomorrow. Tomorrow is the last day for a person to register and be eligible to vote in the November general election and runoff elections. So for more information, you need to visit the Georgia Secretary of State's website or by contacting your elections county department. And again, tomorrow now, that's Tuesday, October 11th, is the last day to register to vote to be eligible for the November general election and the runoff elections. Meanwhile, also this week, county registrars will start responding to absentee ballot requests. Susanna Capaluto reports applications are already up 25% from four years ago. During the pandemic, Georgians voted by mail in record numbers, but since then it's become a bit more cumbersome because of the state's 2021 election law. Applications now require a driver's license number or a copy of another form of ID, and the time to apply has been shortened from three days before an election to 11. So the last day to request an absentee mail-in ballot for the midterms is October 28th. All ballots need to be returned by Election Day to count. According to GeorgiaVotes.com, more than 186,000 voters already requested mail-in ballots. 59% are women and 34% are African-American. 65% of those requesting absentee ballots so far are over 65 years old. Susanna Capaluto, WABE News. And with Georgia's midterm elections expected to be close, candidates are trying to tap into as many voting blocks as possible. Emily Wu Pearson looks at how the Abrams campaign is trying to engage the Asian American community with one big issue. There's an ad online right now that features Michael Webb, the ex-husband of Xiao Tan, one of six Asian women killed in the mass shooting at Atlanta area spas last year. Now I'm not a Democrat. I'm a gun owner and a hunter, but I cannot remain silent. In the ad, Webb says Governor Kemp's ties to the National Rifle Association and his support of loosening gun laws enable people like the shooter. 
Experts say this kind of ad might sway groups that don't always vote. In this case, the Asian American Pacific Islander community. Ben Taylor is a political scientist at Kennesaw State University. He says campaigns have to perfect a difficult calculation of what will actually motivate groups. And you're trying to find an issue on which the, the incumbent, in this case Brian Kemp, has somehow perhaps fallen out of step with public opinion. Stacey Abrams even hosted a town hall specifically on gun violence with Asian American leaders in September. In a statement, the Kemp campaign said about the ad that the Abrams campaign is weaponizing the grief of a community to, quote, fearmonger and lie about the governor's record of keeping Georgians safe. Taylor says Democratic campaigns have to thread the needle in Georgia to hit the right tone and not alienate voters. Particularly as a challenging candidate, you are trying to find every possible avenue to whittle away just 500 votes there, 1,000 votes here, just trying to get just ever so close to that 50% margin. In 2020, 185,000 AAPI voters cast a ballot. That was up 63% from 2016. According to the nonprofit Asian and Pacific Islander American Vote, this year there are more than 250,000 eligible AAPI voters in the state. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. First Lady Jill Biden is scheduled to travel to Fort Benning this week to visit with members of the military and their families. That's according to the White House. And during her visit this Thursday and Friday to the Army Post near Columbus, the AJC reports Biden is also set to stop by the U.S. Army Maneuver Center of Excellence. Last time Jill Biden was in Georgia, she was visiting a children's summer learning program in Athens. Finally, let their rallying call now begin with back to battle two for the A. Confused? Don't be. The postseason gets underway tomorrow for the Atlanta Braves. The team will battle the Philadelphia Phillies in the National League Division Series. And it's been decades since the two teams have met in the postseason. you got to go back to 1993 when Philadelphia won the National League Championship Series in six games. The best of five series begins in Atlanta. Well, technically, Cobb County, maybe. Tomorrow, just after one, it's a afternoon game. I gotta love that. Game two is Wednesday. And of course, the winner moves on to the National League Championship Series. Nothing like baseball in the fall. By the way, thank you to the listener who sent me a sympathy card for my St. Louis Cardinals being ousted out of the playoffs. Y'all funny. You're listening to Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U.
From WABE in Atlanta, Closer Look continues. I'm Rose Scott. Now, in just a moment, we hope to connect with historian Peniel Joseph, who's making a case that the United States is going through a third reconstruction. And this is all important conversations that are part of our continuing focus on the state of American democracy and its parallels to history. And you may recall earlier this year, I spoke with political scientist Yasha Mock about his book, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart, and how they can endure. And we start off by looking at the tenets that best define a diverse democracy and what could be leading to the issues democracies are facing around the globe. Your book and the premise around it also not just talks about, you know, what these tenets are, as I call them, of, of a diverse democracy, but you're also talking about why in, in some nations and, and, and in some societies it's falling apart. So let's start, I guess, with the bad first. Is it falling apart because of the political leaders at the top or the people who have the power to elect those leaders don't feel empowered, if that makes sense. Or is it just a combination of both and everything in between is just messed up? Well, it's a little bit of both. But, um, you know, when you look at the history of deeply ethnically and religiously diverse societies, uh, you have democracies that were very screwed up. You had democracies that perpetrated deep injustices like the American Republic in the first centuries of its existence with slavery and Jim Crow mm-hmm. and so on. But you also had lots of non-democracies that had similar problems, right? Um, and so I think that there's something deeper in human psychology going on here. Uh, one of the stories I tell in the book is of the social psychologist Henry Teifel, who wanted to understand what it is about groups that makes the members so willing to favor the in-group over anybody who doesn't belong. And mm-hmm. he thought he was going to create these groups that were so silly, they were so devoid of meaning, that the members wouldn't actually uh, favor each other. And so he got a bunch of kids into the lab and he showed them a sheet of paper with about 150 dots on it. And he said, guess how many dots there are? And some said 120, some said 180. He divided them into underestimators and overestimators and had them play games against each other. And it turned out the underestimators started to discriminate against the overestimators. And the overestimators discriminated against the underestimators. So he failed in creating a group that was so silly that it wouldn't be motivating in that sort of way. But it showed us something very, very important, which is how easily that kind of group formation can take place and uh, how strongly it pushes people uh, to those kinds of behaviors. And so we've seen again and again in history that some of the worst injustices pitted different groups against each other, often along the lines of race, ethnicity, religion, mm-hmm. uh, culture, uh, that caused some of the worst wars, civil wars, genocides, forms of ethnic cleansing uh, throughout history. That is why it's actually hard to build diverse societies and diverse democracies. Well, in fact, you take the reader through these different phases and you you start with history. And, and, I, and I guess for most folks, that's understandable because in order before you start talking about the process or the vision or the optimism, you also have to paint sort of how we've gotten here as a society overall. What do you think people get wrong about what a, quote, diverse democracy should look like? Oh, that's a great uh, that's a great question. I think um, there are two ways of going wrong. So one is a way that perhaps I myself thought in the past, which is to say uh, groups have wreaked such terrible damage in in history. You know, so many of these worst conflicts were because it was my group against your group. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps we should get people to give up in groups altogether. Perhaps the future should be one in which people just identify as individuals or perhaps it's kind of cosmopolitans who care equally about everybody in the world, mm-hmm. uh, rather than as members of particular religious or ethnic or cultural groups. 
And I think that that is unrealistic um, because uh, most people uh, do give great importance uh, to the culture of the parents, to their grandparents, to mm -hmm. the religious beliefs they have, of course, and to some extent also uh, to their ethnic group, especially if that ethnic group has uh, experienced uh, oppression in the in the past. And that's something that also can make up the richness of a country. I think one of the wonderful things about America is that it does contain these groups. So that's one error. Now, the other error is going to be other extreme. It is to say we should give up on having a, a common culture and a common country uh, altogether. And you see in countries like Lebanon uh, uh, what the impact of that is, because mm -hmm. it basically means uh, that all of your life uh, opportunities are constrained within your group, that members of these different groups can't uh, be meaningful friends, they can't marry each other, they can't be business partners together. Um, that sometimes even the laws to which you're subject depend on the group into which you're born. And so that's going in the other extreme. Mm -hmm. So I think we need a society in which we recognize the, the, the dignity and the importance of groups, but base the society on the rights and the uh, duties of individuals so that I have the ability to remain a member of my group, but I can also leave my group. I can also strike out my own. I can also disagree with my parents about the kind of life I want to live. And that double liberty has to be at the, at the base of our society. But our lived experiences that we all have, and we all have different lived experiences, and it could be from how we're raised in a certain community. It can be from what we gather from our parents. So it sounds like also you're saying there needs to be this level of acceptance. Some will say maybe tolerance, because when you say tolerance, that's kind of that's still sort of a, a a word that's like, well, I don't want it. Sounds begrudging. Yeah, right? you're still wrong, but I'm, you know, so acceptance of the different ideologies. But that can be problematic, too, because in, at some point, when it comes to the democratic process of electing leaders, leaders have to give, or these candidates, they have to lay out what their ideology is. And even if they say, but I'm tolerant or I'm accepting of this other, these other folks, for some who want to follow them, they say, it's not good enough. You need to come out against this and come out against that. And that's a problem. And I know we're not going to solve this in the last 15 minutes, <laughs> but that is at the core of why there's there's so many issues when it comes to how we should be living as a in a democratic state. Small D. Yeah, you know, it's funny you talked about how experiences shape how we see the world. Um, uh, and there, too, there seems to me be sort of two relatively uh, extreme positions where uh, some people say we don't, you know, we're all equal and 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 we don't have to listen to each other particularly because it doesn't make a difference who you are in this society. And that's clearly wrong, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the experiences that somebody has in, as a woman in our society or as a black person in our society are different uh, from the experiences that I have as a as, as a white man. Now, I think there's also another extreme which says that we'll never be able to understand each other and we'll never be able to communicate. Um, and so we should simply sort of defer to each other, or defer to uh, the positions or, or, or the views of those who are sort of most oppressed. But I think that understates the extent to which we can communicate, to which mm -hmm. I can, for example, listen to the experiences of, of my female friends. And when they say that they're being harassed in particular ways on the subway or on the bus, mm -hmm. I may not know exactly what that feels like, but I know enough about what that feels like to understand that that's an injustice and that in the kind of society I want to live in, uh, that injustice shouldn't shouldn't be there. So we can have a much more substantive form of political solidarity, which is based in listening to each other, which is always going to be a difficult thing, um, but which is possible. So I, I'm hoping for 
uh, form of political solidarity, and we'll never get there entirely, mm -hmm. um, but in which uh, we actually have shared ideals and we listen to each other enough, but we won't completely agree, mm -hmm. but we have some amount of real grace. We have some amount of real compassion for each other's uh, experiences and points of view. I have an email from a listener that says, Rose, in the era of gaslighting and conspiracy theories, we will never get to logical consensus ever. What do you make of that? <laughs> well, look, I don't think we'll ever get to logical consensus. Politics is never entirely logical and <laughs> democratic politics has never been logical. Um, uh, I do think we sometimes underestimate uh, how irrational people have been in the past. So, for example, uh, you know, I, I hear from a lot of my friends and, and they have a point that the rise of social media and, and the Internet has made it easier for these crazy conspiracy theories to mm -hmm. spread. And, and there's a truth to that. Uh, but when you look at serious polls, about 10% of people today uh, believe in something like QAnon. About 10% of people in 1999, when the internet was really in its infancy, believed that the moon landing was fake. Um, so we've had these deeply irrational beliefs in our politics for a long time. We'll continue to have them. The important thing is to be able to win over the majority of people um, who, who decide elections. Um, uh, I worry less about the Trump superfans mm -hmm. than I worry about some of the people who may have voted for him uh, begrudgingly or may have worked for him because we believed some of his outsized promises, we need to be able to reach those people in order to make sure our democracy is safe. The, the, the real Trump super fans, they're never going to change their mind. And that's fine. It's about the majority of society. If this is a quote, and I, and I read this was part of into the core of your book, if, you know, if we're experiencing this global recession of democracy, what role can super nations play in all this, particularly when you look at the U.S.? Because we get, as some folks would say, we have our own issues. So how can we be a template, or, you know, or, or a blueprint for other nations? Although some would argue it's it's better than than a lot, but still, you know, we have our issues as well. What role can the U.S. play globally in terms of being this this model for for a democratic state? Yeah, look, I mean, I certainly think that uh, because of the problems in the United States, we don't get to go around and tell other people uh, what to do. And uh, that point has been true for a long time, but it's particularly true after four years of uh, Donald Trump. Um, so the best we can do is to sort out our own society. Um, uh, but at the same time, we should also recognize that by the standards of uh, world history and the standards of our own history and the standard of many other societies in the world today, uh, what we're doing in the United States is quite remarkable. We certainly don't have true equality, mm -hmm. um, but we are closer to having real equality between uh, different ethnic and religious groups uh, than, than most societies in the history of the world. And we have, despite significant step backs and despite uh, the threat from uh, uh, a Republican party that is less and less committed to democratic norms, uh, made some significant progress uh, on this over the last decades. I think um, when you compare uh, what America looks like today to what it looked like 50 or 100 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, that's a stark uh, contrast. And even though we need to be very upfront about the injustices today, I think we're actually uh, not being true to the suffering of past generations mm -hmm. uh, when we talk as though there had been no progress. Well, in your book, you are challenging the reader to understand what role citizens and policymakers can play in all this. 
let's start with the policymakers because for some therein lies the problem. <laughs> therein, for some, therein lies <laughs> for many. Yeah, therein lies the problem. If I, I asked you earlier what folks get wrong about a diverse democracy, well, let's talk about some of the tenets then of an effective diverse democracy. What's at the top of that list? Well, I think the background conditions have to be there, right? If I feel really frustrated in the world, if I have a sense that um, I'm not doing better than my parents were, and I'm worried about my children's fate, um, and I know that if I get sick tomorrow, I might go bankrupt, and the politicians aren't listening to me, and everybody hates each other, you know, I switch on cable news, and everybody's just shouting at each other, uh, that puts me in a bad place. And so then when a neighbor moves in, and perhaps that neighbor is an immigrant and has a slightly nicer house and a slightly bigger car, uh, I might say, why does he deserve that? Mm-hmm. Right? Why does he live better than me? This, this seems wrong. Um, if you live in a society in which most people have a sense that they're making economic progress, they might not have everything they want, they might not be billionaires or even millionaires, but uh, they lead better lives with more opportunity than their parents did, and they're optimistic for their children. They know that there's uh, a welfare state in place which ensures that when they get sick, uh, they're taken care of. When they're old, they're going to have a decent life. They have a sense that there's politicians who who listen to them and uh, that they are uh, you know taking seriously uh, uh, by the elites of a country that mm-hmm. they're respected. That makes it much easier to say, hey, this new neighbor comes in and perhaps they're different, perhaps they're an immigrant, but I'm doing well and I wish them well too. But you also make a point to tell the reader that it's not just one particular one particular major party it's it's in a sense the two major ones obviously in the u.s are democrats and, and republicans you make clear to the reader that both have some work to do in terms yeah of, and i think go ahead and one of the areas on that i think is uh, this belief that demography is destiny which has become uh, shared it's the one thing that conservatives and liberals for democrats and republicans still agree on um, and I think it's uh, actually a pernicious view of the of the future. Um, uh, it drives a lot of a demographic panic on the right and the far right. We think, oh my God, you know, the country is changing, and uh, our base is white voters, and so as white voters become less influential, we're going to lose elections. I think it also drives some of the uh, triumphalism on parts of the Democratic Party who think that the only uh, need to sort of uh, mobilize the core voters, whom they often misunderstand. They assume they're very progressive when when that's not necessarily the case. Um, and victory is going to fall into their laps. Now, I don't want to live in a country in which I can walk down the street of Atlanta and know who you're voting for by looking at the color of your skin. Mm-hmm. I don't want a country in which the main political division is by race. That is the case to some extent today, but not as fully as people think. We've started to see a little bit of change in that. Uh, actually, uh, Donald Trump was competitive in the 2020 election because he significantly increased the share of the vote among every non-white demographic, among African Americans, but particularly among Asian Americans, and especially more, even more among among Latinos. And I actually think that that is a positive development. We want a political system in which both parties genuinely try to appeal to voters uh, of any ethnicity. As we wrap up, uh, Yasha, what what has drawn you to this work? in this space here as a political scientist and author? Well, listen, I come from from a family that has experienced what uh, it means when diverse societies fall apart mm-hmm. uh, for, for generations that have yeah. uh, been murdered, that have been expelled from their country. Um, and so this is a topic that's, that's, that's very personal to me. And as a Newman American citizen, 
I'm very aware of what it meant in America's past when we when we got uh, this 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 question wrong with with slavery and Jim Crow and other injustices. So, um, you know, if we want to uh, keep off the danger to our democracy, we need to actually have an idealistic, forward-looking vision for a society that most of us would actually be excited to live in, and that's what I've tried to 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 create in in, in this book in the Great Experiment. Yasha Monk, political scientist and the author of The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. This is all part of Closer Look's ongoing conversations. All this happening, taking place since January 6th. And we've been asking the question, what is the current state of our nation's democracy? This is Closer Look. We're back in a moment. And from WAB in Atlanta, Closer Look continues. I'm Rose Scott. This week, Agnes Scott College's third annual Women's Global Leadership Conference gets underway. And it includes a pre-conference workshop known as the Inclusive Leadership Initiative. And the theme this year is all about leading inclusively. Now, ahead of the conference, I had an opportunity to speak with Agnes Scott College President, Leah Katie Ozak. Hello, Rose. It's such a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you so much. Let's begin here because I'm not sure. I was thinking about this as I was putting this segment together. I don't know if I've ever asked you this. What are the characteristics of a, of a good leader, an effective leader? Well, I'd say one of the major characteristics is someone who is a good listener. And we would say at Agnes Scott, someone who has a global view as well, that's respectful with respect to cultures, and one who someone is willing to follow. Mm-hmm. One can declare themselves a leader, but you have to be sure that people are working together. And so when you throw in that global viewpoint, are there are there attributes that are different when we talk about inclusive leadership and what you all call a diverse world? Well, I think one of the things is we have amazing leaders in the United States, but there is also there are also amazing leaders around the world. And we can learn a lot from them. It's not just here. As a matter of fact, at our conference, we have a phenomenal leader Mm -hmm. from Rwanda who is going to be one of our speakers, Agnes Benaguahu. And she has been instrumental in Rwanda with respect to leading and leading around the world with respect to global health and equity in global health. So it's it's not just about mindset. It could be about environment and and also leading within an organization or, or an entity. But you, you, you all see having this global lens as being very key nowadays. We see it as essential nowadays. And again, you hit, uh, you hit the nail on the head. With respect to, often people think about it's leading in government. It's leading in the corporate world. But one of the things this conference is going to focus on is leading in all of those, from governments to corporations, activists, but what we can learn from one another and how we can then apply that as women and women leaders. I will say we're also very excited to have a male leader Mm -hmm. who's going to talk about inclusive leadership, Ed Bastian Mm -hmm. from Delta. And that's the other aspect that I think is incredibly important. It's not just about women leading, but it's about men mentoring and men also helping to create women leaders of the future. Let's back up a little 
bit for our listeners who may not be familiar with this. Sorry, this is your third conference. Yep. Yes, it is. What is going to be different, you think, this year? Well, the exciting part is we're going to be in person. Well, yeah. So we are really delighted about that. Um, we had the idea for this conference pre-COVID. We've had two virtual conferences. This year, we're going to be in person at Agnes Scott College. So we're really delighted to have that. And one of the differences is that focus on inclusion. That last year, as you know, we focused on climate change Mm -hmm. and social justice. And here it's focusing on inclusive leadership. It's people can lead, but if they don't lead inclusively, then it's not as effective as it could be. Well, let's let's dissect that a little further. I can imagine listeners saying, well, President Zach, when you say lead with this inclusive thread, what does that look like? What that means is, and there are great examples and studies that say, if you look, for example, at corporations that have a diverse board, they are much more likely to be successful, successful financially, successful with respect to their employees, and successful in the in the environment around them. So, you know, having diversity as part of your leadership team is incredibly important. Also, recognizing that you have a diverse world and it, that you are leading in and recognizing all of the different types of diversity in that world and ensuring that you're including them. I want you to answer this. How do you respond to, because if we, we've had so many conversations, and let's be really clear, the last few years, everyone has been focusing on DEI, you know, diversity, equity, inclusive, being inclusive, all that stuff. But for some, they say, well, this is much more than just checking off boxes, because for some, they think, oh, we have to have this type of person, this person that represents this group and this person that represents this group. But it's more than just checking off boxes. It is, it is about a mindset. So can it's you about, go ahead? No, thank you. Absolutely. It's about a mindset and it's about values and it's about action. It's about living those values. It's about ensuring that not only are people there, but their voice is heard. And then once their voice is heard, that they have an influence on what you do next. So it is not just who's at the table, but there's a voice and that you respond to what is said. Let me ask you this, and we'll get back to the conference in a moment, but do you feel like at Agnes Scott College, since you've been there as president, that you all have that type of inclusive diversity, either in your leadership team, throughout your departments, we definitely know with your student body. I would say that it was even before I came to Agnes Scott that it really was a focus and a goal at Agnes Scott to be sure that at all aspects of the college that we were inclusive with respect to our leadership. I was able to bring our first vice president for diversity, equity, and inclusion to the college. Um, Our teams are are definitely diverse and inclusive, but we could be better. Mm -hmm. Um, Frankly, in higher education, there are not enough faculty members mm-hmm. who are, are faculty members of color. There are not enough administrators. One of the things we're doing at Agnes Scott is we're creating those faculty members of the future. And I think that's something that we have to really focus on. How will the students be involved in this conference? Well, first of all, our students are just amazing. So they've been involved. Now, every with- college president says that. Well, it's true at Agnes Scott, Um, and um, our students have been involved in the planning. They're going to be involved in participating. They are going to be involved as ambassadors of the conference. So not only have they helped to develop 
this conference, uh, along with our faculty members and our partners, I, they are going to be participating as well and sharing in this conference. With and the, also other colleges as well. We've opened the invitation to other colleges. Um, the students are welcome to join us in our campus. With the speakers that you all have and the agenda that you have set, what goes into making sure that you have a speaker that embodies everything you just told me about the mission of this conference? Well, again, we had a fantastic group, advisory group, that reviewed, one received recommendations, reviewed the panelists, and helped to invite the panelists. So I am so grateful again to our faculty, staff, and students who helped to create this conference. You mentioned climate change and, and issues surrounding that last year. Full disclosure, I, I know I moderated a conversation. And you were awesome. Okay, I didn't see... Folks, she just said it on her own. Thank you for that. When you all are making sure you're connecting current, modern-day issues with not only just this conference but with what you want your students to be a part of, do you find yourself maybe saying, you know what, here's a, an area that perhaps we need to focus on more that maybe we're not? And do you hear from students that say, hey, could we be more involved in X issue or this issue? Uh, students are always ready to be involved in one issue or another. And I have to say, that's one of the things I think is so special about Agnes Scott. It is part of our mission um, to think deeply and to engage the social and intellectual challenges of our time. Mm -hmm. And our students take that very seriously. So they are bringing forward issues that they believe that we should be focused on and it's happening in the classroom, it's happening outside the classroom, and it helps to shape what a conference looks like. And then I wanna also focus on this because you all are gonna offer an inclusive leadership certificate workshop? Yes, um, and I am again really grateful to Dr. E. Rose Persina, our Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, who helped to develop the certificate. And we are providing four modules of that certificate the day before the conference. And those modules focus on what we mean, exactly what we're talking about today, mm -hmm. by inclusive leadership to what is one's values, because you want to lead authentically. Mm -hmm. And then well, how do you put those values into practice? So we're offering that workshop on um, the day before the conference, which is uh, October 12th for the workshop and October 13th for the conference. Let me ask you about leadership. Have you changed at all, you think? And has your leadership style changed at all since I, our very first conversation, what, how many years ago? Um, if I certainly hope so, that a good leader should always be evolving, should always be learning from the environment around them and changing. And I have to say, our students influence me every day, that I learn new things from them, how to be able to approach issues, how to think about different things. So I certainly hope that I've evolved since the first time we spoke. Give me an example. Well, I would say that one of the things our students are very intent on is ensuring that everyone has a seat on the table. And I realized that was something that was always extremely important to me. But they have the ability to see and to include people mm -hmm. in every single conversation. Sometimes I have to remind them they have to think about themselves a little mm -hmm. bit um, in the process. So that ability to learn, and I will say, 
Generation Z um, is a new generation mm -hmm. that we're all learning from. They're young entrepreneurs, they're go-getters. So it's that that quick soundbite. So I'm learning to be able to communicate um, in, in Generation Z. What are you looking forward to the most with this conference? I am looking forward to being able to have our community engage on this topic. And when I say community, to me, that means the Atlanta community, mm -hmm. as well as our students and faculty and staff. And one of my favorite things to do is to bring people together and bring the community together to be able to discuss topics that are important to our Atlanta community to make us all better. So with that being said, President Zach, are you all able, I know it's just the third year, but are you all able to measure the effectiveness of, of having this Women's Global Leadership Conference? And what do you hear from either folks who are speakers or panelists or perhaps students who've left and come back and said, you know what, this has been so critical for me as I've gone on to do whatever. How do you measure? How do you gauge well, that? I think all of those things. Um, clearly, we hear from our students, and many of our students go back to the classroom and talk about what it is that they've learned during that time. We've heard terrific feedback from community members. And I will say I'm also grateful for our wonderful sponsors, and the list keeps growing. Mm -hmm. So we must be doing something right. And this year, in addition to BlackRock, we have Georgia Power, we have Truist, Sage, uh, the uh, German uh, American Chamber of Commerce, so the list keeps growing and people keep coming back and they they keep spreading the word that it's a good thing to do. Now, before I let you go, I would have to talk about this because, as you know, it's an election year. And once again, women are, are projected to lead in terms of not just voter turnout, but even in campaigning, engagement always seems to be heavy uh, in that demographic with women. Um, or what are you seeing around campus? Are, are you he hearing and seeing the students being engaged in this political I atmosphere? I, say, I, wa <laughs> I walked into the dining hall last week and, um, you know, I went up to a table where people were talking about, you know, get out the vote and this is what we have to do. And I was, you know, congratulating and encouraging. Um, this is a very hot topic on campus. And and again, they're ready to spread the word off campus as well, how important the vote is. And this election year, more than ever, it is important for people to get out the vote. I know people come out when there's a presidential election, mm -hmm. but the midterms this year are really vital and it's important. And also there's some major, major issues mm -hmm. that affect women in Georgia. So this is an important election year. And something else that's very important for folks like you who are working in higher education, that is with affirmative action. We know the justices of the high court will hear arguments later this month. What concerns you about challenges to affirmative action and, and policies? Well, I think we're all looking at this and, and holding our breaths. I mean, it is so important that we are able to have a diverse group of students coming together to learn together to live together, to study together. So we are all looking at these decisions. It's also, I think, important not only to higher education, it's important to all of our institutions and how we do business. And as I you know, mentioned at the beginning, diversity means success, mm -hmm. success in whatever it is we do. Do you have conversations with either your counterparts about you know, using race in terms of admission for, you know, 
colleges and universities? And have you met counter arguments? And, and I'm curious what those conversations have been like, if you can share, if you will share. Uh, no, and I would say I have not um, encountered the counter arguments um, and with my colleagues. This is a very important topic. There are the presidents in Atlanta gather as well as nationally to talk about these topics. Um, and I will say, you know, people rec and rightly so recognize the importance of increasing diversity um, and providing an opportunity for higher education. And so it's something that we want to be able to support as educators. Agnes Scott College's third annual Women's Global Leadership Conference gets underway this week. Agnes Scott College President Leo Cadio Zach, as always, taking time to join Closer Look. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great conference. Thank you so much, Rose. Great to see you. And Closer Look continues right here from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Historian Peniel Joseph says, guess what? The U.S. is currently going through a third reconstruction. The first after the Civil War and the second during the civil rights era of the 50s and 60s. And Professor Joseph lays it all out in a new book, The Third Reconstruction, America's Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century. Now, this conversation is part of Closer Look's ongoing segments related to the current state of our nation's democracy. Professor Joseph holds a lot of titles, including founding director for Center for the Study of Race and Democracy, joint professor of Public Affairs at the Barbara Jordan Chair in Ethics and Political Values, all of the University of Texas at Austin. If I read all of them, we'd be here till tomorrow. But keep in mind now, he is all about New York because he grew up in the emergence of the hip hop era. So dare I ask him to name the top five of all time. Professor Joseph, welcome. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me, Rose. It's a pleasure. Before you take listeners through history as it relates to when we talk about racial justice, I want to begin with your childhood because I mentioned New York and what you and your family experienced in Queens, New York, because it provides the reader with some insight here. Yes, I'm the proud son of Haitian immigrants who came to the United States in 1965. You know, I've, I've been raised all over the city, so I was actually born at Presbyterian Hospital in, in Manhattan. Uh, I toddlered in Brooklyn, uh, really close to the Brooklyn Museum. And then we went to Queens, Jamaica, Queens, Southside, Jamaica, Queens, off of Springfield Boulevard in Hollis. And we moved there around 1976. Um, and so I grew up in a segregated, all black, 100 percent neighborhood. I mean, and when I say 100 percent black, I mean just that 100 percent black. <laughs> so I want people to understand because a lot of even the students I teach sometimes. And this doesn't mean these black folks are less authentic. So I'm not saying that, but mm -hmm. it, it, it's something to be said to be growing growing up just around black people. So it's a it's an interesting childhood because I liken it to what Stokely Carmichael Kwame Touré, I wrote a book about him. And when he grew up in Port of Spain, Trinidad, he grew up in a black country, a black city, mm -hmm. right? Even though British colonialism. So it just like, I didn't really see white people until high school. Mm. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Gotcha. So I, I felt a, a lot of love for black people, a lot of uh, dignity because of my mother, Jermaine Joseph, who's 83 mm -hmm. and, and you know, was, was part of 1199 SCIU, Mount Sinai Hospital. So it was just a very interesting way to grow up. And we saw multiple levels of blackness. We we were first gen. We saw people who were, uh, we were first gen and, and Haitian. Mm -hmm. We saw people whose folks came from down south and migrated. We knew about Juneteenth because we had black folks from Texas mm -hmm. <laughs> growing up. 
I went to an all-black Baptist church, 100% black. So it was really immersing yourself in both a, a black American tradition, mm-hmm. but a global black and Caribbean tradition simultaneously. So it was really wonderful. And when you talk about connecting not just your experiences, but you're taking the reader with connecting the past with the present. As this title suggests, there are these what you call, I guess, three watershed moments in our nation's history. When we talk about, you know, America's struggle for racial justice and at the core of this. And some say, well, let's begin with the Reconstruction era. You have to go back that far. I've had arguments and I do mean arguments off air with folks who really say, you know what, we need to not start looking at that. We need to start working on the present and the future, but you have to start with the history. And that's what you're doing here in this book when you talk about we are in our third Reconstruction era. Let's go back to the first after the Civil War. Oh, yes. And Rose, the the history is so important because the history shapes our contemporary society and reality. So the stories we tell co-create the policies, the symbols, the statues. So first Reconstruction, we have the Reconstruction Amendments, three decades first three decades after the Civil War, I I have it as 1865 to 1898. It's hugely important because it sets up one story about America as a multiracial democracy that's connected to an emancipationist legacy of black men and women. And I sort of highlight black women throughout Mm -hmm. these three reconstructions. Um, The other is the story of the lost cause in the Redeemer South and white supremacy that says black people are unfit for citizenship and dignity and are going to be have to be completely super exploited, criminalized, jailed, uh, and demonized and dehumanized forever so that white people can enjoy the world, right? Mm-hmm. And so those are the two stories. And what's interesting about these three reconstructions, Rose, is that during the first reconstruction, the redemptionists and the lost causers, they win. They win the narrative war, even though there's going to be black people like Ida B. Wells, who I point out, mm-hmm. and so many different black women who are part of Francis Harper, who are feminists, who are really expansive uh, democratic visionaries and co-architects of the black freedom struggle, who are pushing us to do something different, right? And we do get black churches, historically black colleges and universities, all these different things, but we lose the narrative war and that's how we get lynching, that's how we get Tulsa, Mm -hmm. Atlanta, but it starts earlier. Memphis and and, uh, New Orleans, are, there are massacres against black people there in 1866. Mm-hmm. That's that's a few months after the ratification of the 13th Amendment, right? And so the second reconstruction is the heroic period of the civil rights movement, 1954 to 1968. And that's really important for us because that's how we, we win that narrative war. That's how you get Michelle Obama, Barack Obama, Oprah Winfrey, the works. And I want to, I want to pick pick up on that then because often when we talk about the beginning of the civil rights era especially the 60s it is this timeline to begin measuring racial equity progress from then to now right then into the 21st century but you remind readers in chapter two of various racially motivated acts and that includes the murders of the three civil rights workers andrew goodman james cheney and michael schwerner murdered by the kkk and you write quote the murders seem to hurdle the nation back in time During Reconstruction's first decade, Mississippi had emerged as a center of black power, especially in the 26 counties where African-Americans made up more than 60 percent of the population. But how about this, Professor? You look at Mississippi now in terms of the voting population. When I read that, I wanted to look up what Mississippi's voting population was. So there were over 2.2 million eligible voters. But when you break it down by race, 60 percent white and just 37.1% 
black in terms of a voting block. So when you hear that mm-hmm. statistic and you look at then the reconst- that that reconstruction era, have we the progress has been made? Yes. But there are some sectors you look at voting and, and you could get into voting rights and all that where we still struggle. Black folks still struggle in terms of this this quest for power and equity through the vote. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, you think about the third reconstruction rose is is 2008 to the present. And so it's Obama, BLM 1.0, the rise of Trump and MAGA, and then 2020 and all those juxtapositions, the BLM movement, the pandemic and the racial disparities of the pandemic, January 6th, but also the activism of black women like Stacey Abrams and getting Warnock and Ossoff elected so that the Biden-Harris administration could pass any policies. So when you think about the third reconstruction, Mm -hmm. this is an effort to transform when we think about things like wealth inequality, when we think about mass incarceration, racial segregation. Black people are disproportionately overrepresented in every single negative social economic indicator. Uh, There's a great new book about black women and the bad maternal health outcomes by Mm -hmm. Linda Villarosa, right? Mm Uh, we're we're overrepresented in all the bad outcomes. This all goes back to Reconstruction. And the reason why we're seeing these assaults on the 1619 Project, the critical race theory hoax against truth teaching, the voter suppression, is that lost cause narrative is bumping into this Reconstructionist narrative. We thought we won after Obama, but Obama was not the victory people thought it was. And that's why I talk about Obama's top-down citizenship versus BLM mm-hmm. as bottom-up grassroots dignity. But, Professor, we've been here before. We've been here before with some of these, quote, watershed moments of wokeness. And and folks keep telling me to write this book. A lot of folk got woke in 2020, but now they've fallen asleep. But this call for a reconciliation or, or a re- reawakening as it relates to what racial sh- justice should look like in this nation. So what are you telling your readers in this third reconstruction about 2020? Because some will argue, yeah, we had this moment where it was a watershed moment, but now here we are in 2022 still arguing about who won the election in November 2020. Well, I think it brings us back to the first Reconstruction, Rose, because this happened. We Black folks were accused of voter fraud. We were accused of all kinds of nonsense. And that's how we were criminalized, convict lease system, sharecropping, peonage, outright murders and lynchings of us and massacres of us in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s. I think what we, the positive we have to take from this is there was 25 million people led by black women out in the streets in 2020. Mm-hmm. Now, what these folks did is they organized. The only reason Biden and Harris are in there is because of black women and men, but especially black women who disproportionately voted for them, 95% rate. What we've gotten from that are the pandemic bill, which has centered equity. There's a whole bunch of black children who'd be living below the poverty line, if not for this infusion of resources and cash that came from the Biden administration. And we've gotten the infrastructure bill, we've gotten the the, the student loans, uh, we've gotten the, the, the Inflation Reduction Act. All that has been in it with an equity lens that actually impacts our community. So one, we can't, we can't forget that. Um, what we haven't gotten is the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Mm-hmm. We haven't gotten the For the People Act, the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act. But we have to maintain hope and we have to be able to tell that reconstructionist story of multiracial of multiracial democracy centering who I argue are the people like Stacey Abrams, Tamika Mallory, Alicia Garza, Nicole Hannah-Jones, centering this expansive 
intersectional vision of democracy. And one of the reasons we're seeing such a backlash is that rhetorically, we were winning the narrative war, especially in 2020. You say we were winning the narrative war. I want you to dissect that a little further for our listeners, because I, I can imagine some say, well, you know, why, why do we have to win this, this war based on when we're seeing deaths of, of black men and women? Why is that always the metric that, that folks want to use, that this is now how black folks should start, quote, winning the narrative or winning the war? Can you understand that? Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, the narrative war that we were winning wasn't just about highlighting the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. It was about a different story of American democracy. Some of that includes black joy, black pleasure, right? Black creativity. It's not just our trauma, Rose. So when I say narrative war, I mean the fullness of the black. I'm glad you said that because here come the emails. black, Black vulnerability, moving away from toxic masculinity, embracing our queer sisters and brothers, right? Embracing them because they're part of our community. They are us, okay? So that's what we were doing. So winning that war is about the complexity of blackness in all of its dimensions, but all of its beauty. That's the Mm -hmm. whole thing. That's the story we have to constantly uh, talk about, right? And yeah, maybe one day when we're free, we don't have to do that narrative war. But one thing I'll tell you, Rose, Every society is based on a set of oral traditions. And we know this from our study of African history, Mm -hmm. African history. The West thinks that it's all about the written word. That's a lie. What creates reality is stories, which is why Africans built civilization globally before the Greeks, before the Romans. It's Africa. It's Africa. And we do it through oral traditions that we tell ourselves. So when we tell ourselves a positive story of what we can achieve, we can change the world. When we tell ourselves a negative story, we create that into reality. That's why we have Confederate monuments and we don't have monuments to black and white abolitionists mm-hmm. or indigenous abolitionists or, 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 or Latinx abolitionists and queer abolitionists. So one of the things we have to everybody who's listening has a story to tell and you have to share that story in the context of American and global history but your story has to be a positive story even as it confronts the negative legacy of these histories of racism and oppression you need your own show brother as we end our conversation (laughs) as we end our conversation I just want to briefly ask you because you mentioned her earlier to tell our listeners about your mother you dedicate the book to her and quote all black people especially black women who have led efforts to reconstruct America here and around the world close quote yeah my mother is my heart you know she's been the single uh, most important influence you know in my life and uh, I did it to honor her um, she lives with us here in Austin now um, and I did it to honor her and and the legacy of so many black people and especially black women so many mothers raise black sons against so many odds and they pour their lives and their souls into us and they should be honored and elevated and exalted for that. So the whole book and the whole purpose of the book is to honor and exalt and elevate uh, women like my mother. Enjoying this book. The book is The Third Reconstruction, America's Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century. Its author, Peniel Joseph, joint professor of public affairs and at Barbara Jordan Chair in Ethics and Political Values. University of Texas at Austin. Professor, always never enough time. Got to bring you back. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Rose. I really enjoyed it. Same here. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. From Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.